Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Follow along in your Bibles. Leave your Bibles open as I preach so that you may be wise like the Bereans and test what you hear against the Word of God. Jesus Christ says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God this morning for the people of God. Well, I am glad to be back this morning after my week away on vacation. I'm glad to be back to our study on the seven letters that Jesus Christ sends to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These seven letters found in the opening three chapters of the book of Revelation. And as we return to our sermon series this morning, beloved, let me remind you that these seven letters are not just written to the seven particular churches in Asia Minor. They are ultimately written to the entire church throughout the entirety of what the apostles called the last age or the last days. That is, they are written to every single church that exists through the span of time between the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven and his second coming at the end of the age. And let me remind you that everything written in all of these letters, the commendations, the condemnations, the calls to repentance, the threats of judgment, the eternal promises... They are for us today. They are for our church here at Canal Salines Presbyterian Church. And if we desire to be a true Christian church, a church which worships the true and living God in spirit and in truth, a church that is growing in faith and knowledge and love, a church that is growing in our discipleship, a church which is growing in our love for each other, a church which is growing in our holiness, a church that will not lose its witness in the world. And brothers and sisters, we must read and we must hear and we must believe and we must obey the words of Christ that is found in these seven letters. These are the words of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is indeed the living head of the church. We are obligated to hear and obey them. So what have we seen so far? What have we seen so far about the nature of the Christian church in the letters that we've looked at already? In the letter to Ephesus, 
we learned that Jesus delights in a doctrinally rich, theologically grounded church, a church that has no tolerance for false teachers or false teachings, a church who in fact hates false teachers and the works and their works and teachings. We also learned in Ephesus that Jesus, while he does delight in this type of church, he does not delight in a church that loses its love for all the saints. He does not delight in a church that becomes so used to fighting against heresies and false teachers that when they become bored with that, they turn upon themselves start fighting with one another, thus losing their, love, losing their love for all the saints. In fact, Jesus condemns such a church. Any church who, despite their doctrinal purity, loses their love for the people of God, Jesus says He will come and take away their lampstand. He will, in His divine judgment, wipe that church out, as He evidentially did, or eventually did, to the church in Ephesus. We also learned in the letter to Smyrna that Jesus delights in a church who is willing to suffer tremendously, willing to give up earthly riches and comforts and even their own earthly lives for the sake of his great and holy name. Jesus praised the saints in Smyrna and he condemned them for nothing because of their unwillingness to compromise with the world, even at great personal cost to them. And in that letter, he encouraged the saints in Smyrna knowing that more severe persecution was about to come upon them. And he promised that if they would hold fast to the faith, if they, would, if they would hold fast to their confession and suffer for the name of Christ, then what they would receive would be heavenly riches that would far outlast any earthly riches that they gave up for him. And now we come to the church in Pergamum. A church which, as we will see, faces a two-fold threat. A threat from outside the fellowship of the church and a threat from within their own fellowship. Before we look at this two-fold threat, first we should notice in verse 12 the self-designation of Jesus Christ to this church. If you've worshipped with us before during this sermon series, you know that, or hopefully you will remember that, uh, I said that every letter begins with a self-designation of Jesus Christ. And that designation of Jesus is always relevant to the situation in that particular church. Jesus says in his greeting to this church in Pergamum that this letter is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This tells us quite a bit about the condition of the church in Pergamum. We've heard in Revelation chapter 1 that the sharp two-edged sword is the sword of divine judgment. And we'll hear more about this in verse 16 today, but for now, we know that whatever Jesus says in this letter to the church in Pergamum, it is being framed within the fact that Jesus is the one who yields the sword of divine judgment. And what he has against this church in Pergamum is no small matter. So as I said, Pergamum, really like every church that has ever existed, faces or faced a twofold threat. A threat from outside the fellowship of the church, a threat from inside the fellowship of the church. And it's around this twofold threat 
that Jesus both, both commends and condemns the church in Pergamum, the commendation of Jesus Christ. What Jesus praises this church for is indeed how this church has, up until this point at least, handled the external threats against her. Jesus says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Here, Jesus is showing us that the external threat facing this church is indeed physical persecution. Beloved, it's no surprise that a church which would exist where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, would indeed face physical persecution. Because what does Satan, the ancient dragon, seek to do? He seeks to destroy the radiant woman. That is, he seeks to destroy the bride of Christ, the church. And so this is what the church is facing, this external threat. And what does it mean that Pergamum, as a city, is a place where Satan's throne is? There are several historical truths about this city which would lead Jesus, I think, to declare it Satan's dwelling place. First, the city was indeed the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. And so because it is the capital of the province of Asia, the religious center of the imperial cult of Rome in Asia is centered here in Pergamum. We talked about this imperial cult before. This is emperor worship. Caesar is Lord. In other words, Caesar is divine. This was the creed. This was the confession of faith of the Roman Empire, if you will. And anyone who confessed anything else, especially the one who would confess that another is Lord, that Jesus Christ is Lord, they would have been seen as a religious heretic. They would have been seen as a traitor to the empire. It would have been made liable to state persecution. And so this is one reason why this is the place where Satan dwells, where his throne is. It's the heart of emperor worship in the Roman province of Asia. But not only was Pergamum the center of the imperial cult in Asia, it was also a city which was absolutely littered with temples to false Greek and Roman gods. The great temple of Zeus was found in this city. The cult of Athene was centered in this city. The cult of Dionysus was centered in this city. And more importantly, perhaps, the center of the cult of Asclepius, the god of healing. I didn't say that right. That's okay. The god of healing. A god who was symbolized, by the way, with the symbol of a coiled serpent. A symbol, a symbol which ancient Christians considered to be an emblem of Satan himself. This cult was also centered in the city of Pergamum. So with all this demonic, cultic activity centered in upon this city, Jesus declares it the place where Satan's throne is, the dwelling place of Satan. And it seems in light of existing within such a place, the Christians in Pergamum... We're holding fast to the name of Jesus Christ, suffering greatly for his name. It is interesting, just historically, we have a letter from the Roman governor, Pliny the Younger, and he's writing to the emperor of Rome, and he says in there that the Christians could avoid persecution 
and having been handed over to death, all they had to do was curse the name of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that we have that letter because look at what Jesus says. He praises this church because instead of cursing his name to avoid persecution, he says, they hold fast my name, did not deny my faith, even when one of their own Antipas was martyred for it. So this is what Jesus commends at Pergamum. What he praises the church for. In light of this external threat of persecution, in light of this heavy persecution inflicted upon them by the pagan Roman Empire, really in light of what is inflicted upon them ultimately by Satan himself, these Christians held fast to Jesus. They held fast to their faith. This indeed was very praiseworthy. And this church is setting a moral example for us today. A call to hold fast to Christ in the face of external pressure and persecution upon the church. But as Jesus says in verse 14, there's a major problem in this church. I have a few things against you, Jesus says. And here we discover that the truly dire, the truly deadly problem in Pergamum is not physical persecution and death, but instead the threats within their own fellowship, primarily their tolerance of false teachers. Beloved, this is noteworthy. The real danger, I'm convinced, to any and every church rises up from within. Yes, persecution is a threat to the church. But you might say it's an obvious threat to the church. There's nothing subtle about persecution. Renounce our Lord and confess faith in a false God and you can avoid being killed for Christ. That is repugnant to most true believers. It's not even an option for the true Christian. And if we have to die because we will renounce our Lord, so be it. Now, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to settle the matter in your mind. It's not an easy thing to face physical death on account of Jesus Christ. But it is obvious. The choice is obvious. It's an obvious, clear threat to the church. But the threats that rise up from within the church, they are oftentimes extremely subtle. They are oftentimes very much so hidden and cloaked. When wolves enter into the flock of Christ, they rarely reveal themselves as wolves. Satan himself comes as an angel of light. The spirit of Antichrist, do not forget, is one who is able to set himself up in the midst of God's people. Heretics, brothers and sisters, rarely, if ever, declare themselves to be heretics. This is what makes false teachers so dangerous. This is why it is so important for God's people to be wise, to have a deep, rich, theological, and doctrinal, solid, uh, doctrinally solid understanding of the Scriptures. This is why we cannot be a church which is fed on a steady diet of skim milk. We must make it our habit to feast upon the meat of Scriptures. Because these dangers are real and they are in our midst. I remember in the last year or so talking to a man who was newly ordained in our denomination. 
He was only a few months into his ordained ministry. We were talking on the phone, and uh, he was talking about some of the challenges facing him and the flock to which he was an under-shepherd of Christ. And he said something that I won't forget. He said, I am quickly realizing that although we are sort of used to thinking about the dangers against the church as coming from outside the church, I'm quickly realizing the real danger to the church most oftentimes rises up in her midst. I think that statement is 100% true, beloved. Every church which has abandoned the faith did so because they permitted false teachers in their midst and were subdued by false teachings. That is what happened to the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. That is what happened to the New England Congregationalists, which led to the Unitarians and the Universalist movements. That's what happened in the mainline denominations, including, including the one from which our denomination split. This is what happened, this is what's happening now to quote unquote evangelical churches. Beloved, if we are not careful, it will happen to our church as well. And it seems this is what happened in Pergamum. False teachers from within the church rose up and led the people away from the true gospel. And Jesus is most displeased. Because it seems that Pergamum, unlike Ephesus, was tolerant to false teachers. I told you when we studied the, book, uh, the, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus, tolerance is not a virtue in the scriptures. We are called to be intolerant to anyone, to any idea that would lead us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pergamum was tolerant. And Jesus says, you have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The assumption here is not just that Pergamum had false teachers in their midst. It's that the church knew that they had false teachers in their midst and they allowed those false teachers to remain within their fellowship. They gave them a forum. They let them speak. And it's very clear that because of their tolerance and lack of hatred for these false teachers and their false doctrines, the church was being destroyed. Destroyed by Balaam. Destroyed by the Nicolaitans. Now what exactly is the nature of these false teachers? Jesus tells us by the names. Balaam and Balak come from the Old Testament book of Numbers. Balak was the king of the Moabites, an enemy of the nation of Israel. And as a king, he desired to have the nation of Israel destroyed. So what does he do? He calls upon this false prophet Balaam to pronounce a curse upon Israel. You can read this in Numbers 23. And as you read, every time Balaam attempts to bring a curse upon the nation of Israel, the Holy Spirit would intervene and would transform that curse into a blessing. In other words, beloved, Balak and Balaam discovered that attempting to destroy the people of God from the outside did not really work. So Balaam changed his tactics. And in Numbers 25, you can read of the approach of Balaam. He sent the daughters of Moab, pagan women, into Israel's midst where they seduced 
and lured the men of Israel into sexual sin and idolatry, thus leading to God himself bringing judgment against Israel, killing 24,000 Israelites by sending a deadly plague. Do you see the similarities here? Satan was attacking the church at Pergamum by using Roman pagans to bring persecution, an external threat against the church. But it wasn't working. The church was holding fast. They remained faithful against those external threats. However, what was working was an internal attack where false teachers went into the church and began, much like Balaam used the Moabite women, began to seduce the people of God into spiritual and sexual immorality. Furthermore, this group, the Nicolaitans, this is the same group that the church in Ephesus hated and Jesus praised them for their hatred of them. The Nicolaitans were being tolerated among the flock at Pergamum. The Nicolaitans, they were a group of false teachers who said something like this, you know what? We are forgiven of all of our sins. And we have Christian liberty and freedom. By the way, this is what heretics do. They generally start with a premise of biblical truth. But then they said, okay, we have forgiveness. We have Christian liberty. We have freedom. So let's just openly participate in the licentious living of the culture around us. Let us eat and drink and be merry. Let's participate in the sexual immorality of the Roman Empire. In all actuality, Jesus is probably talking about the same group of people here. Those who hold to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, they were probably one and the same. It's interesting to note in Hebrew, the word Balaam means the cursor or the destroyer of the people. In Greek, the name Nicolaitan means the destroyer of the people. These false teachers, beloved, were leading Pergamum into compromise with the world. And the church in Pergamum was allowing themselves to be corrupted by the spirit of the world because they allowed these false teachers into uh, to, these false teachers to lead them both into idol worship, indicated by the fact that Jesus says they were eating food offered to idols, meaning what they were probably doing is these Christians were going and participating in pagan feasts which were held in the temple of idols, feasts which were characterized by gluttony and debauchery, and they were also, being, uh, they were also allowing themselves to be led into sexual immorality engaging in the sexual ethics of the society surrounding them. And so Jesus says, verse 16, if you do not repent, he will come and slay them with the sword of his mouth. Jesus will not tolerate a church which claims his name and yet engages in spiritual and physical sexual immorality. The warning, beloved, might be easy to understand Jesus is simply saying, I will come and cut down the false teachers. When I first read this, it seemed like that's what he's saying. I'm going to come, I'm going to use the double-edged sword, and I'm going to strike down the, the ones who hold to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. But as I studied this text more, it seems to me Jesus is indicating here that he's threatening the entire church. 
not merely the false teachers who were misleading the people of God, but he was also threatening those who were permitting themselves to be misled. Reminds me of Romans chapter 1. Paul pronounces condemnation not only upon those who do the acts of idolatry and sexual immorality he is condemning, but he also pronounces condemnation against those who approve of those who practice idolatry and sexual immorality. And therefore, because the church approved by tolerating these false teachers, the entire church was in danger of being slayed by the sword of Jesus Christ, cut down in the wrath of his judgment if they do not repent. Jesus would rather destroy a church than allow to stand in its worldliness and bear a false witness against him. This is a timely word for our church today, beloved. It's a timely warning for our church today. Because we are in a real risk. We are in real risk of being lured away from the true and living God by those who claim to be Christians, but who have embraced a spirit of worldliness. By those who would claim we can participate in the outright pagan practices of the world around us. Everywhere around us, brothers and sisters, we see self-professing Christians who would call for us to eat of the food offered to idols. And who would call for us to participate in and improve of sexual immorality. And if we allow ourselves to be lured away from Christ and into paganism and into worldliness and do not repent, beloved, Jesus will strike us down too. I must admit as your pastor, one of my biggest concerns for this church in particular is the spirit of worldliness among us. A more than willing spirit and many of us to participate in the pagan culture around us, to embrace worldly philosophies and worldviews. It is, brothers and sisters, no stretch of the imagination, I think, to believe that our church today exists where Satan dwells. That we today exist in a society where sexual immorality is celebrated, praised, worshipped, and is infiltrating the so-called churches to the point where supposed Christians would look at us and because of our fidelity to the Word of God call us hateful and intolerant. It is a culture that we exist in which undermines God's created order of the human race being created male and female after His own image. This is a culture where, which destroys the image of God by destroying the line between male and female. A culture which mutilates children, giving them cancer-causing hormone therapies, performing unreversible gender transition surgeries, all in the name of tolerance and science. A culture which glorifies and worships death, even the death of the unborn, and hides behind a mask of it's our right to do it. A culture which says, which worships perverse sexuality, pornography, even in our pop culture, it's in our music, it's in our movies, it's in our TV shows, it's in our books. A culture, culture which is riddled with the philosophies of New Age thought and humanism and Marxism and ideas that all religions are created equal. A culture which embraces the idea of eat and drink for tomorrow we die. A culture which says the highest goal 
is not to create truly virtuous children, but rather tells our children to follow your hearts, listen to your feelings, follow your dreams, whatever you do, be happy. A culture which worships the celebrity, which worships stardom, which worships fame and material wealth. A culture which says you must affirm the things we affirm and celebrate the things we celebrate or else you will not be welcome to participate in society. A culture which hangs all of our hopes upon who occupies the oval office instead of who occupies the throne of heaven. We, indeed, beloved, are in a place where Satan dwells. We may say one nation under God, but we should be asking ourselves, what God is our nation under? Which God are we really seeking to bless us? I ask this point, point, I ask this question point blankly, beloved. Can you really tell me that a spirit of compromise, a spirit of worldliness, has not infiltrated our church? Has it not infiltrated your life at all? Can I say that it has not infiltrated my life and my heart? It worries me. It concerns me. It scares me. Because I see in many of you, and I see it in myself, a spirit of worldliness, a compromise with a culture where Satan has made his throne. There's no middle ground. You're the seed of Christ or the seed of the serpent. We cannot compromise with that. Those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, the Nicolaitans, they are always lurking in the shadows. Beloved, they are in the shadows of our church. They are in the shadows of our own hearts. And we must root it out. We must kill it before Christ comes and kills us. Because, beloved, again, our church is in the midst of where Satan dwells. And what kind of church needs to exist in such a place? Not a compromising church. Not a church that confuses the message. Jesus needs a church in the, thro- in the place where Satan dwells. He needs a church which will not deny His name. A church which is willing to die for the sake of Christ. A church which is doctrinally pure, not just for an hour on Sunday, but the rest of the time that you as a member of this church are living in the world. You need to be doctrinally pure and apply the doctrine and theology and the truth of the Gospel to every area of your life. A church which is not a safe haven for false teachers. A church which is living out its call to be a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation. A church which will not allow itself to be corrupted by the spirit of worldliness. A church which will not compromise with a Christ-hating society. A church which will stand firm on biblical morality. A church which is united by the true gospel of Jesus Christ, abounding in love for God, abounding in love for one another, and abounding in love for our neighbors. Only this kind of church will truly be salt and light amongst the darkest places on earth. Even in places where Christ would call the dwelling place of Satan. Any compromise with the world, beloved, be it in our teachings or in our practice, will compromise nothing but our witness. Compromise will do nothing except to dim our light and unseason our salt. And Christ 
will not tolerate that to happen. And so again, beloved, we must root out the spirit of Balaam, the spirit of the Nicolaitans. We must be humble. We must be quick to repent, not just once, not twice, but rather we must live lives of repentance, recognizing that until we reach glory, we will always be prone to wander into the airs of Pergamum. And if we persevere, if we conquer in faith and in repentance, brothers and sisters, Jesus offers up to us an amazing promise, a threefold promise. It's found in verse 17 today. Jesus says to the one who conquers, he will give some of the hidden manna, and he will give a white stone, and he will give a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is at the heart of this threefold blessing, this threefold promise? Well, here I think Pastor Richard Phillips is most helpful. Out of all the commentaries I read, I, he was the most helpful to me in explaining the threefold promise that Jesus gives in verse 17. As he says, all three of these blessings are pointing towards one great truth. And the truth is this, Christian, you have no reason to accommodate the world given all that you gain in Jesus Christ. That's the main point. That's the main emphasis shown to us in the threefold promise that Jesus gives. Why should we compromise with a world that hates Christ when look at what we gain in Christ? That's the great truth of what Jesus promises the church who endures in repentance and in faith. The hidden manna. It represents fellowship with Jesus Himself. It's supernatural food. It's the supernatural food that the Lord gave Israel in the desert wanderings, which sustained them day after day. This spiritual food, this hidden manna, is nothing less than Jesus' great saving work to strengthen His faithful people in need. It is, as William Barclay once put it, the very blessing of the Messianic age. Spiritual nourishment in Jesus Himself, the bread of life. The white stone, it's, it's white, beloved, and we are given it, beloved, it is a white stone because it is a holy stone. It is a stone of righteousness. And yes, it is given to us, meaning that our reward comes to us not because of our own holiness and righteousness, but rather because of Christ's holiness and righteousness given to us through faith alone. In the ancient world, athletic champions were given white stones to convey honor upon them. We are given white stones, beloved, because our champion, Jesus Christ, is eternally victorious. And now we share in the glory of our Lord. But also, beloved, in the ancient world, when in a court of law, jurors would acquit a criminal, they would take a white stone and place it before the judge was a stone that stood in contrast to the black stone of condemnation. So for the one who repents, receives Jesus by faith, and perseveres in that repentance and faith, to the one who lives a life of repentance and faith, we receive the white stone of our acquittal. The divine judge declares not guilty. Not guilty because, not because of what we have done, 
but instead not guilty because by faith, the righteousness of Jesus Himself, the holiness of Jesus Himself, is credited, imputed to us, counted to us as if it were our own righteousness. And finally, Jesus says we will receive a new name. That name, beloved, is the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Revelation 14 talks about this. 14 verse 1 says that the redeemed now have Christ's name written upon our forehead. We are sealed with the very name of Jesus Christ. We are indeed intimately united to the very Lord of glory. That's how Richard Phillips says it. G.K. Beale says that this new name given to the one who repents, it is a mark of genuine membership into the cup and the, to the community of the redeemed without which entry into the eternal city of God is impossible. That's what we receive if we repent and hold fast to Christ. Beloved, it is better than anything that this world could give us. It is better than anything we might gain if we give in to the spirit of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. We are fed with the spiritual food of the bread of life, Jesus himself. A food better than any food offered up to idols. We're given a white stone of victory in Jesus. A white stone which declares us not guilty. A stone which declares that through faith in him we are given a righteousness and a holiness that is alien to us. It is not our own, but is Christ's very own righteousness and holiness. And we are sealed with the very name of Jesus Christ Himself, marked out as belonging to Him, that our entry into the eternal city of God is just as certain as the very name of the King of Kings which is written on our foreheads. This is far better than anything the world could offer. So the call that I want us to have this morning, beloved, that I want to give our church as we reflect on this church in Pergamum, the call is this, let us be diligent. As individuals, let us be diligent to root out from our own hearts that which still holds to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Let us as a church always be diligent in seeking to root out from our midst the very same spirit which would lead us to compromise with and embrace a world around us which has become the dwelling place of Satan. And let us take confidence in the wonderful, glorious, and definite promises of what we receive through repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of our church.